welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host, Charlotte Stiadi from Singapore Management University in Singapore. The issue of rising religious intolerance is currently causing much concern in Indonesia. Indeed, since the blasphemy case that involved ethnic Chinese Christian former Jakarta Governor Basuki Purnama, analysts, observers, and civil society groups have been alarmed by what they see as growing prejudice and attacks against religious minorities. Various survey data have indicated that religious intolerance have indeed increased in the last year. In May this year, we also saw deadly terror attacks in Surabaya, prompting fresh fears about the spread of dangerous radical ideology among ordinary Indonesian Muslims. The state has reacted strongly against these rising concerns, at least from a security point of view. For example, last year, the House passed a new law that allows the government to disband any civil society group deemed to disrupt national unity. Understood to be an attempt to disband radical Islamist organizations such as Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia, many civil society groups and members of society at large support the law, declaring it as necessary to combat radicalism, terrorism, and intolerance. However, is this hardlight stance actually the best approach to tackle issues of rising religious intolerance? Do current rhetoric and methods on how to deal with religious intolerance actually do more harm than good? To discuss this phenomenon further, I chat to Dr. Sandra Hamid. Dr. Hamid is the Asia Foundation's country representative in Indonesia, a cultural anthropologist and development specialist with strong interest in political participation and civil society. Dr. Hamid has 20 years of experience as a journalist, researcher, and development professional. Dr. Hamid was a recipient of a Fulbright scholarship for her doctoral studies at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Recently, she was a fellow in the Center for Islamic Law, Islam, and Society at the University of Melbourne. Mbak Sandra Hamid, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to our chat today. Uh, but Mbak Sandra, let me begin with um, talking more broadly about the issue of rising intolerance uh, towards religious, ethnic, and sexual minorities. Uh, it's a very topical issue in Indonesia at the moment, particularly after mm-hmm. the blasphemy case of um, Ahok or Basuki Jaya Purnama in Jakarta last year. Mm-hmm. People seem to have been really shocked by what happened in Jakarta last year. And in the aftermath, um, analysts and observers have um, uh, been much more concerned about what they perceive to be growing prejudice and even attacks towards minorities. Is this issue of rising intolerance a recent phenomenon? Or have we actually been witnessing a steady decline in tolerance towards minorities since even before the Ahok case? Right. So there's so many uh, questions to be dealt with in that one question (laughs) that that, that you just posed. Um, So I will begin by using your word, uh, people were surprised to see uh, what happened uh, in 2017. Um, And I think that is really the key, right? Why would people be surprised by the heightened use of religion in election when we have seen the trend of the usage of religious discourses uh, in uh, elections beginning um, for Jakarta alone in 2012. So we're talking at least for the five past years, um, the snapshots of every election using uh, religious uh, aspect of uh, candidates, be it Uh, in boosting uh, religious credibility or in discounting uh, the opponent's uh, piety, right? Right. We have seen this in 2012 uh, 
when uh, then uh, candidate uh, Joko Widodo was uh, facing the incumbent Fauzi Bowo. We have seen how uh, our supporter at that time, Roma Irama, said that Jokowi's mother wasn't a Muslim. He later apologized. So all of this very, very, it's almost like a slur. It's almost like an accusation uh, of someone's uh, credibility in religion. We have seen this, you know, for so long already. So I think what we have seen in 2014, for example, is another example of presidential election amendment uh, is another example of the heightened use of religion and using religion uh, for uh, accusing your opponents, right? So I think in 2017, what we're seeing is only a crescendo of what has happened in the last five years. So I'm actually, one of the things that I, uh, I've written about is um, to make sure that we all uh, contemplate on this, um, that you know, when Jakarta and the whole country was surprised by the intensive use of religion in 2017, um, I think people who have been looking at this issue for some time were not surprised, you know. This is only something that, that is to be expected more and more we are seeing this. So that that's one thing about, you know, the, the element of surprise price in 2017 to see that, that number of people. Plus, we're also seeing a very unusual uh, candidate as well, right? So you have this trend of usage of religion since 2012, and then you also have this very unusual candidate of a minority being ethnic Chinese as well as non-Muslim. So all that together, I think, um, um, made what we have seen in 2017 not quite that surprising. Right. So continuing on with that, uh, what you were saying before about why would people be surprised if we, you know, by what happened in Jakarta in 2017, right? Um, In your opinion, why why were people surprised by it? Um, You know, is it because it was an issue that was taken for granted or, you know, uh, or did people not really feel the crescendo of rising intolerance over the years? Uh, What was it that that was really, uh, that really caught people off guard at that time? I think the sheer number of people uh, on, the, on, on that 212 uh, 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 right, the, yeah. the sheer number of people over there, uh, the number can be debated, but the, you know, the picture speaks for itself that all of a sudden they're all there in front of you. And so I think that's the element of surprise is, is the fact that you actually saw mobilization of people on the street. Um, but the point that I'm trying to make about this is that uh, the usage of religion has been for a long time, right? Right. That's been used. And then also the trend, um, people are talking about you, your, your first question asking about the trend, you know, why is it rising? Um, is it rising? From, from what I, from my point of view is that talking about rising or not rising, stagnant and and all that is useful to see the big picture trend, right? Right. But it's not necessarily really useful um, when you're actually looking at um, specific issues. So, um, and I will go back to to, to your question as to why are people surprised and why some people are not surprised, right? Yeah. 
But intolerance in Indonesia has been an issue for decades now. But it depends on what we mean when we say intolerance, right? So people can uh, 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 dismiss the fact that intolerance is an issue in Indonesia. But the fact of the matter is we have communities in Indonesia who could not have an identity card, for example, for a long time. Yes. Right? We have uh, people in Indonesia, a community in Indonesia, Indonesian citizens who could not uh, marry using uh, their own leave and so on and so forth. And to me, this is intolerant. This is a, a format of intolerant. But the general populations are, don't necessarily uh, put this in the radar when they talk about intolerance. So... I think this is part of the problem that there's there are many small level on the ground intolerance marginalizations that we are actually facing as community every day but not necessarily be captured in the conversation about intolerance with capital I. Right. That's that's really interesting. And I would like to follow up on that, actually. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, you were saying before that the Ahok case in Jakarta was really shocking because just of the sheer number of the protesters and the sheer, I guess, uh, the, it's, it's very visual, right, to see to see that in on, on pictures and all that. But like at the everyday level, uh, and you've spoken about this as well in your writings, uh, you know, and, and uh, particularly uh, in response to what um, Martin Van Brunissen calls the, in, the conservative turn in, mm-hmm. in Indonesian Muslim as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were saying before that, you know, some of these acts of discrimination, for instance, towards uh, Ahmadiyya followers or towards um, ethnic and religious minorities who can't get identification cards and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems that they've just been normalized in, uh, you know, in the minds of uh, many Indonesians and, you know, and perhaps particularly among among Muslim Muslim uh, communities. Would you would you sort of agree with this assessment that some form of discrimination have just re- been regarded as, as as normal? Yes, absolutely. And so this is this is really the crux of the problem that we have been um, seeing this uh, for some time. By we, I mean people who are looking at these issues, right? right? But it's been on the newspaper uh, from time to time. And you can see that when that is actually being brought up to the public in newspapers, A, sometimes the publication, uh, the newspapers actually talking about these groups as hearsay. So when these cases are actually brought to the surface by the media, the media themselves sometimes call them heretics. So the perspective of most Indonesians about these very difficult issues um, are very problematic, right? And um, most Indonesians in general, actually, uh, there was a survey on this, a Pew survey on this, actually agree with uh, with the uh, the decisions that have been made by either local government or, or national government uh, for these groups. So what I'm saying is that from uh, structural issues, uh, regulations, as well as social issues, i.e. people uh, perception of these uh, minorities, we have a problem. Now, when I talk about intolerance, I'd like to bring our attention to these issues. 
Um, I know and I do agree that it's very important for us to see the higher level intolerance against the ethnic Chinese, against the non, uh, against the non-Muslim Christians in this case, uh, in the case of Aho. Those are very important. But what I'm saying is that sometimes violence against the minority has happened, and it happened, and it, it's being uh, reported. But we see it just as an occurrence, as an incident. Right. And the more Indonesians get to see these things, the more we become immune to the fact that this is actually a problem. Right. Right. So that's that's what I'm saying. That and so that's why I agree with you. And you said that this has been normalized. We don't see it as a problem anymore. Do you think it's also uh, perhaps, you know, yes, there's an aspect of uh, desensitization from media reports and people are getting more used to seeing sort of what, what you call before occurrences or incidents in the media, right? But do you think also you, the, the normalization of intolerance has something to do also perhaps uh, with growing conservatism among Indonesian Muslims, particularly among the younger generation? Because at least that's what's been hypothesized by uh, observers on this issue as well. Right. Um, I, I mean, I think we, disc- we talked about this a, a little bit before, right, Charlotte? That, you know, I think the term conservatism in and of itself, I know what that means, but it also means a lot of other things, right? It can also mean a uh, conservative person uh, can be a pious person. Right. Um, would a biased person be intolerant? Not necessarily, right? Right. So I choose actually to use the word um, exclusive practice of being Muslim. Right. right. Exclusive practices of Islam. I think that is actually more, for me at least, a useful category um, uh, of looking at how we are as community, whether we are actually changing, whether we become more exclusive in our practicing our religion, um, and that becomes first and foremost our identity, first and foremost our guiding principle in making decisions about, for example, community. So for me, um, that is actually more more useful. So to go mm-hmm. back to your question, are we seeing more of this? And that's why we are um, seeing the more naturalization of intolerance. I completely agree. That is actually what I think is the, the, the one of the biggest problem. As we talked about, you know, our country as Bineka Tunggal Ika, as Pancasila in our ideology, what it means to be a diverse Indonesia. And that is, I think, the, the problem that, that all of us have to be thinking about. Um, how do we become a pious? Uh, how do we let people and let ourselves be pious, but at the same time, inclusive in our practices, right. inclusive in our being a community? And so that's, that's the challenge that we're facing right now. Right, and I think I think you you know you you brought a really um, important point there, like um, particularly now uh, in response to what happened in Jakarta last year, uh, and also if we remember earlier this year as well, um, in in May two thousand eighteen, uh, the the terrorist attacks, the bombings that happened in Surabaya and also in um, in Pekanbaru in Riau. Um, 
people from the opposite side of the spectrum have have reacted uh, strongly uh, against this, and and there seems to be um, a, a labeling process in action here, where um, you know all of all. All of these um, terms, such as uh, conservative, radical, fanatic, um, terrorist, terrorists, are all sort of lumped into one category, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Can you speak a little bit, Masandra, from your observation about how uh, civil society groups and also the you know society at large uh, have mm-hmm. responded towards um, some of the evidence of uh, intolerance and also terrorist attacks that we've seen in recent times? Right. So this is, I think, you know, uh, we we fast forward all uh, five, ten years of of, uh, of uh, intolerance and and signal um, that that recording, right, on on this incidents or occurrence or intolerant acts. Um, yeah. Now, uh, when Jakarta uh, uh, happened, uh, uh, the the mass mobilization that people. Were taken by surprise, that like we talked about, right? Yeah. And then Surabaya happened. Um, what I have done is I actually look at some of the responses from civil society as well as state, actually, and I have seen uh, traces of lumping them together, lumping the issues of, as you uh, as you mentioned, intolerance as well as conservative um, and. Um, radicals, extremism, and terrorism, they become one in in some of the responses. And that includes also, as I said, the state, right? Right. We have seen statements from various groups uh, that talked about, for example, characteristics of terrorists. Right. And when you actually look into the characteristics of terrorists, it talks about, for example, uh, lead an exclusive life often called other kafir or non-believers, right. uh, always claims the truth, right? And when these become characteristics of uh, terrorists, you have to stop and pause and think and listen to yourself. Right? Yeah. You say this thing, are we actually talking about terrorists or are we talking about just very conservative person who uh, refuse to mingle with other uh, Muslim, for example, who always claims the truth. Are we not talking about a person who may not be a terrorist, but perhaps uh, a very pious, very conservative, or sometimes people would call them as Islamists, right? Yes. So for me, this is dangerous because um, we are going to be divided as communities. Right, and we are going to be divided. We are going to look at each other and um, only have in our heads two categories one is dangerous people, potential terrorists, and the other one, us, who actually promote tolerance and promote uh, ex- uh, uh, inclusive community. There's so many things in between, and what we need to work on is to actually get a conversation going, get really understanding what are actually the threats out there, right? Rather than label people and just say those groups are potential terrorists. But because if, that's just a no-go. But um, 
I guess if we look at some of the responses, um, you know, uh, from the state, uh, like for instance, uh, following the Ahok case last year, President Jokowi uh, issued a decree uh, that was then uh, made into law by, by Parliament that would allow the state to disband civil organizations that are deemed to be anti-Pancasila, and this was, of course, uh, aimed at um, uh, radical Islamist groups such as Hizbut Tahrir Indonesia. And if we see the reaction, not just from the society but also from civil society groups, it has largely been supported. And um, people are genuinely um, in agreement that this is something that is um, necessary uh, to combat radical radicalism, to combat uh, potential terrorism, uh, even though it might signal a democratic regression. Uh, why do you think um, even society, civil society groups are prepared to take such drastic actions like this? So I think a couple of things. Civil societies that have been working on issues of tolerance for many, many years, even decades, have not been hurt. They're generally just not being hurt by either government as well as civil society at large, right? Yes. So I think my, my, um, my thinking is that one, some of the civil society organizations have been working on this, have been concerned about this for a long time, but they have not found themselves being hurt. And this is the moment in which they actually are hurt. So yes. they actually take this as an opportunity to push forward their agenda in creating a more tolerant society. So there is that. There is a sense of, of, of um, this is our time because they have been ignored, right? Yes. I'll give you an example. The knowledge about a school in East Java that didn't let students uh, raise flags and sing Indonesia Raya, the national anthem, that has been out for 15 years. It was 15 years ago. Yes. But it hasn't been heard, right? Yeah. No one actually talked about that. And only lately people talk about, oh, in that school, Indonesia Raya cannot be sung. Oh, in that school, they refuse to uh, raise the flags, right? Yeah. And so, you know, imagine if you've been working on this issue for all that time and all of a sudden there's more attention. So I think there's that, you know, uh, there's that uh, reaction as well. Uh, but I think also... The concern, I mean, a lot of these organizations are very concerned because they work on the local level, right? And some of the cases at the local level are concerning, right? And so many of these uh, organizations are trying to deal with those and now see that there is backup from the national level, right? From yeah. the state, from the general population. And so I think this is partly... Um, one of the reasons I believe that they are ready, as you said, to just um, take this and consider this as an extraordinary, um, extraordinary um, time, maybe that needs extraordinary uh, responses. Right. And, and I remember in the update, and you also heard this, um, that Tom Power actually quoted Marcus. Uh, Marcus's warning, which I think is very important, that we, some uh, people are taking illiberal strategies to deal with undemocratic forces. So this is, I think, for me, that sentence really is very important. 
right? Yes. How much do we want to let go? How much of our own values in promoting democracies, in promoting the rights of individuals that we want to let go in our attempt to fight undemocratic forces? Right. That is a question to all of us. So... In your writing as well, and and this is, I guess, a tricky balance to. Uh, y- this is a tricky thing to balance, right? And and this is something that uh, not just governments are struggling with, but even civil society groups, like you mentioned, um, need to find a middle ground. In your own writing, you've been um, advocating for a much more nuanced, um, both state and also community responses against um, religious tolera- intolerance and and radicalism and and so forth. Could you um, elaborate on on what you mean by by uh, some of this more nuanced approach and how um, both the states and civil society groups may change their attitudes towards uh, intolerant groups. Right. So I do not want to belittle the problem, right? We do have problems in which Indonesians have become more polarized um, uh, and and intolerance is 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 a serious issue. The reason why I am calling for a more nuanced approach is because I think this polarization is not helpful. Now, what I mean by that and what I think might be useful for us to be considering is, for example, stop labeling, right? Right. This is very, very dangerous. As an anthropologist, a social scientist, we know the power of discourse. We know the power of stigma. We know the power of labels. And so when we actually see a group of people um, and we quickly jump to a conclusion that they are potential terrorists, we make the issue bigger and our approach may not be the right approach to actually deal with intolerance. Yes. So intolerance is a serious issue, but if we consider everything potentially a terrorist issue, that's the problem. That's what I mean. And um, I think also a lot of organizations have been successful in dealing with intolerance by working using uh, conflict resolutions and peace building as a strategy, as opposed to security approach of infiltration, of... Um, of arrest um, stuff. Exactly. So these are the kind of things that I think we need to be uh, we need to be considering, right? For different groups, different strategies. So it's that simple, right? For It's, it's, it's that um, we know that not... Um, we know that medicines don't work for all kinds of disease, all kinds of problems. Yes. The same thing with social issues, right? So when you have a group who are exclusive, do not want to mingle with other Indonesians, maybe we can deal with that in terms of uh, talking about uh, what that means to Indonesia, what that means to the community, um, talking about more having uh, inclusive approach to these people. But when we're actually dealing with potential terrorists, well, let the people who actually do have knowledge and expertise in dealing with those people um, and let them deal with that because that's a very specific issue, right? Um, That's what I mean by nuanced approach. Um, And also we have to be very careful because that we have seen, um, you know, how much, for example, 
we want to let the state to control uh, what is uh, actually a public space. Right. So when the rhetoric actually on um, having a list of, um, of approved ulamas, yeah, actually approved by the state, for example, what do we think of that, right? And some people have said, yes, the state finally are firm about this, and they are um, going to uh, control uh, and stop uh, and at least not allow certain ulamas to speak, right? Is that really a state? Uh, uh, the kind of state that we want, that, yes. Right? Yeah. Um, and so I think, and then what is the criteria? Uh, but I think that discourse actually is going nowhere. I don't think that actually has been finalized. But what's interesting to me is to hear the discussions around that. And some people are actually in agreement uh, with that uh, with that proposition, with that, with that idea. Right. I was wondering whether you can comment then, Mbak Sandra. I want to ask you a bit more broadly uh, about uh, the, what, what, you know your your thoughts about uh, what uh, this debate surrounding intolerance and how to deal with it will shape up in the future, particularly in the lead up to the um, presidential election and the legislative elections coming up in April next year, um, being a political year, and you know especially with the experience of Jakarta last year. Um, People are wary about uh, about the rhetoric, about the narratives of campaigning, and also the potential for sectarian violence in the lead up mm-hmm. to 2019. Um, do you see intolerance, maybe religious, ethnic, sexual um, intolerance, rising um, in the near future, particularly in the lead up to the elections? And what do you think? Um, can the state or should the state and um, community groups, civil organizations do to sort of counter uh, potentially hateful or intolerant narratives? This is very, very important question. I think um, the answer, the short answer is, I think, yes, right? Yes, in that um, what we have seen in the past uh, cycles of election is a heightened language of uh, othering the heightened language of uh, stigmatizing others, right? And I think partly because what we talked about on the community level, and people also echo what uh, national figures are saying about these issues. So all of a sudden, it becomes even more um, acute. The problem becomes even more uh, bigger, and um, some words become more normalized. Like, if you think about the word kafir, it was actually really denormalized after 2017. And this is this is um, what I think we'll be hearing. So that's just one example. But in 2019, I think we are, uh, we have to brace ourselves uh, to actually first work with the community, on the community level. People, uh, CSOs have to really brace themselves and work to build resilience in the community so that they don't become um, targets uh, of this very heavy rhetoric on religious othering uh, by politicians on the national level. Now, we have seen in the past week, actually, Charlotte, uh, the campaign has started, right? And the first thing that politicians are saying or campaign teams are saying, this is going to be a nice, uh, calm, uh, 
campaign. We are not going to use uh, the rhetoric of religion. We are going to be focusing on programs. All good. Yeah. All good. Yeah. But we know in the past, it's not necessarily the head figures, right? It's not necessarily the top figures or the candidate themselves who are actually saying these things. When they did say it, they would say it in a more nuanced way, right? Yes. Um, they're sending signals of intolerance. But now I think what we have to see is they're not going to be... Um, the, the, the politicians, the national figures, are going to be very careful, which is a good thing. But we also have to understand that in the past, it's also not them necessarily, but it's a campaign team. Yes. It's the supporters. It's the, it's the supporter. It's the potential uh, um, uh, voters. Uh, it's the uh, some of the interest, home, interest uh, groups, yeah, right, interest group and 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 you know supporters of of both teams. So I think that's the that's the key. Um, it's them who have to be dampened. Um, how do we not use uh, um, religiously marginalizing language? Yes. Indonesia is a very religious country, and we have to take that as fact, and there's nothing wrong with that. But when religiously marginalizing language is actually being used, that's where the problem is, right? And so that is, I think, what is what we're going to be facing in 2019 and how we actually deal with that when that actually comes closer to voting day. Mbak Sandra Hamid, thank you so much for joining me on today's uh, episode. It's been a pleasure talking with you as always. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Charlotte, and I look forward to chatting more when you come to Jakarta. Thank you very much, Mbak Sandra. <laughs> that was Dr. Sandra Hamid, the Asia Foundation's country representative in Indonesia, who is most recently a fellow in the Center for Indonesian Law, Islam and Society at the University of Melbourne. Talking Indonesia will return on the 11th of October. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog. Subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.